Good morning, everybody. All right. Good to see you guys today. I'm glad to be with y'all. I'm glad to be looking in the Word. If you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19 today. We are finishing up a series we started two weeks ago, a series we're calling Laying the Foundation. It's a uh, short series to kind of get us into the picture of what it means to be the church. I know you guys, a lot of you have been in the church for a long time, or been a part of a church here and there at least for a while, and or this one now, and you've heard a lot of these things before, but I just did not want to start off in my tenure here without going back to some of the basics that you're going to hear over and over and over as part of the foundational elements of what it means to be the church and what it means to live out the mission and to do so in a very healthy place. I know that we do a lot of things in life to try to stay healthy, right? right? But there's some things that we think we should do that actually don't really help sometimes, right? And there's things that we uh, don't want to do that we know we should do that would probably make us healthier. But I think sometimes we think we're doing things pretty well, and sometimes we find out that we weren't doing them like we thought we, like we, thought we were. They weren't as healthy as we thought, or they could have been better. And so I think we're going to learn a few things today that are going to push us that way. I'm going to spend the first part of our time together through this text, kind of review on where we've been the last couple of weeks, and then I'm going to spend the last chunk of our time on our third part of this series. This whole thing is about how we need to become a Christ-centered confessional community. And we've been talking about that for several weeks. I don't want to take too much time getting into it, but I do want to just start off by kind of taking a step back. And it's kind of asking a question that was rhetorical. I don't want you raising your hand and waving it around, okay? Not this time. And so uh, I'm going to ask a question. And don't, don't answer out loud. Don't indicate. But I want to know, how many of you have been struggling at some point in the last year with some form of, for some length of time, uh, the, the, the concept of, of loneliness? I think many of us would say that even when we're surrounded by people, sometimes we feel lonely. I think that sometimes when we're busiest we've ever been, we can be lonely. When we're surrounded by family or friends that love us, we can feel lonely. And sometimes when we're alone, we don't actually feel as lonely as we do with other people. But I know that most of us have struggled at some point in our life with loneliness. Now, a little bit about myself, because I won't pretend that I know you guys all well enough yet, but I, I grew up in such a way that I didn't think a whole lot about being lonely or about uh, relationships a whole lot. In fact, I thought I was pretty good in relationships until I realized through a friend's kind of helping me to see the truth that I didn't really know what it meant to be in a relationship where you're selflessly kind of loving others and doing for others. It was kind of all about me. It was all about what I would get out of it. I didn't really think about other people's feelings until that conversation. I was about 22 or 23. And uh, it was one of those kind of aha moments that began to change me even before I came to know Christ that really started to impact me to think about things in a different way. So I don't know if you've ever been in that place before where you've not known exactly uh, what you're headed toward, but something kind of hits you upside the head and changes your trajectory, but that's what happened to me. And it's something that's been playing itself out ever since then. Now, I'm not going to pretend that you have all been in that situation. Some of you grew up and you understood a lot of that stuff from the get-go, or maybe you came into it earlier in life. But I think that there is a pandemic going on in the Western world right now and it's one of loneliness. And I, I know this because I've, I've seen it in various ways become something that we uh, take in as the church and see. It's written, it's written about all the time now. If you go to the self-help books, you'll find a lot about loneliness. If you read articles and newspapers, you'll find that people are lonelier now than they've ever proclaimed to be before, especially in the U.S. and in the Western culture. Uh, there's a lot of other 
things we could notice. And in my previous uh, church where I was the pastor, lead pastor, we actually gave away a book to everybody that came and visited, and we let them pick out of a bunch of books that we had in the back. And the most often chosen book was on loneliness and how to deal with that. Uh, it's, just, it's just a pandemic. And it's one that we don't think about often. According to the UK campaign to end loneliness, they say a few things. They say more than half of lonely people simply miss having someone to laugh with. I like laughing with people. Y'all like laughing with people? The research also showed that simply being together with someone is missed most of all. 52% of lonely people said they just miss being around people. And 46% miss having a hug. Now I'm going to warn you, I'm a hugger. So I like to give hugs, and if you're not comfortable with that, men, I'm going to hug you the most, probably. <laughs> I like to do that, too, make people feel uncomfortable. Men, not other people, just the men. So if I see you running down the hall the other way, I'm probably going to hunt you down at some point when we get to know each other a little bit, because I don't want you to miss a hug. But it's a serious thing. Older people experiencing loneliness also miss simple everyday moments, they say such as sharing a meal with someone, holding hands, taking country walks, or going on vacation. They miss those things. In fact, loneliness is not only a depression kind of thing, it's also a a health thing, not just in a mental capacity, but it affects you in other ways. We should know this because we know if we're not doing all the things to take care of ourselves physically, it affects us emotionally. If we're not doing things to protect ourselves, to be healthy emotionally, we'll be affected physically. Same with loneliness. It's also that way with our spirituality. Uh, we are holistic beings. We're created that way. And so when something's out of whack, it affects everything else. Just like on your car, you know. It's the same way. That's how we function. In his book titled Everyone's Normal Until You Get to Know Them, John Ortberg says this. He says, researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. People who had bad health habits such as smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, or alcohol use. But strong social ties actually lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. In other words, he says, it's better to eat Twinkies with a good friend than to eat broccoli alone. (laughs) Amen? Amen. 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 All right. All day long, I don't eat broccoli. We all yearn to be known. We all want to be accepted by somebody. Even the people that say that they don't want that, they usually tend to gravitate towards other people who say they don't care about being in groups of people, and then that group becomes a community in itself, right? Because we just, we just gravitate towards other people of like-mindedness, or we find some affinity that draws us in, whether by age or career choice or by sports, whatever it might be. We find something to have community around. The problem is that we all know that there's something missing in our lives, an emptiness that's kind of there, and we try to fill it with all kinds of stuff, but a lot of times we fill it with stuff that just can't even get close to satisfying us. And we will find things that will satisfy us for a little while, but they don't last. And we have to keep looking for something else or more of that thing. We just don't get satisfaction in it. And I'm going to posit to you today that the reason that is is because we actually are created for Christ-centered community. And that is the thing that will help us to alleviate that problem of loneliness. It alleviates so much more, but that's one of the things that it helps with. And I want to take a minute, since we've been talking about this for two weeks, I want to pour forward in the Word, and let the Word kind of remind us of those first two weeks, and then we're going to really jump into the last section of this passage that's going to really work into us 
what it means to live in a real community that is gospel-centered and confessional. So I want you to, if you haven't turned there yet, get in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19 through verse 25. And I'm just going to start off by reading it to us so we can get it in our head. And then I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to jump in and start kind of dissecting the text bit by bit. So let's just read it here. I'm going to give you a little background real fast before you start reading. That the author of Hebrews has spent the majority of this letter trying to show us that we no longer need a priest to intervene for us because we have one who is the great high priest. And he's saying that everything has been done that needs to be done. You are no longer separated from God because of your sin. If you're in Christ, if you put your hope and faith in Christ, you're not separated from the presence of God. That doorway has been opened to you, and you've been ushered into that presence, and you have the the ability to step into that presence with confidence. And this is where he picks it up and begins that conversation. So everything he just said leads into this. Is therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and with our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let me pray for us. Father, we're about to embark on a time together where we try to understand what you want us to understand about your self-revelation, the scriptures. But Lord, there's so much going on in our lives. I pray that you would quiet the voices and that you would quiet the worries and the anxieties, the stressors. Help us to focus in right now. And Lord, would you illumine our minds to understand the truth and would you press that deep into our heart to give us a desire to change and that you would shape us from the inside that we might look more like Jesus when we leave than we did when we came in and that we would give you all the glory and all the fame for it. And we ask that in Christ's name, amen. So the big picture, right? We've been talking about for the last few weeks what it means to be a Christ-centered confessional community. And we've talked about Christ-centeredness, that everything needs to revolve around Jesus. Everything in our lives needs to point to him. He is the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of the universe. God himself holds it all together. Therefore, the one who created it all is the one who deserves the glory for it. He's the one who has created us. He is the one, if we have put our faith and hope in him, who has redeemed us. We are his. Therefore, we should make much of him. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 2.20 that we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but Christ that lives within us. And the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. So it's not about us. It's not about our careers. It's not about any other missional endeavors we have. It's not about the hopes and dreams we aspire to prior to coming to know Christ. Because when he takes the stage, he becomes everything. And we see that hinted at right here. Look with me in verse 19 on. We're going to see what this author is telling us here as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, brothers, he's talking to the church, implication, brothers and sisters, right? We know it's the church because he calls them brothers. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. They may be asking, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, what is he talking about the holy places? Is this a holy place or is he talking about somewhere else? Well, back in the old days, back in the Old Testament, we call it, back before Christ, 
uh, there was this idea that God had placed into the people of Israel where they had to come to a place to worship him because they were separated from him because of their sin. That they could not be in relationship with God apart from some kind of intermediary because it would basically kill them, basically. Because he is perfect and holy and so powerful and glorious that to see him and be in his presence fully would destroy you. That was the, the, the picture. And so there was a place in the temple where they went to worship that was separated from all the rest of the temple, and only the head priest could go in one time a year to make intercession for the people, to make atonement practices for the people. He would sacrifice an animal that was without blemish, that was a perfect sacrifice. He would go in, he would take some of the blood, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies that nobody else could go in all year. And he would do that, and then that would be atoning for everybody's sin. What that means is that there had to be a sacrifice. God made it clear throughout the Old Testament and the law. He said that you have to have blood shed for anyone that rebels against me. That's a normal thing. Just think about the things you like to watch on TV. Anytime you watch a movie where there's a king and somebody rebels against the king, it's off with his head, right? They don't get that because they just came up with it out of thin air. That's because we know that the ultimate authority is the ultimate authority. And if you rebel completely against that, you will be punished for it in a severe way. And so he says there has to be blood spilt. And so what they were told to do is to sacrifice an animal. Now, we know that an animal, while very valuable and valuable to the Lord, is not as valuable as all those people, one animal. And so we know from the get-go that all of this is pointing to a greater sacrifice that would come later. And this greater sacrifice has now been revealed to us in the scriptures as Jesus. And so we see here as he's talking about going to the Holy of Holies and that there was blood spilt for that to happen. What it means is that someone has gone in and made atonement once and for all, and that is Jesus, fully God, fully man, come here to live perfectly the life that we could not live, not, not sinning at all, perfect person who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve so that we can live the life with him forever that only he deserves. That's what's going on here. He's done this for us by dying on the cross in our place. All of God the Father's wrath placed on him that we deserve for our sinfulness. And so when he says here, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, what he's saying is, is that there's no longer anything separating us from presence and personhood and relationship with God. There's nothing in between us and him because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus. And that's just crazy. That means that there's nothing, you don't have to go through a priest, you don't have to go through a pastor, you don't have to go through a staff member, you don't have to go through a smarter person or through a, a more mature Christian. You have direct access to God himself because of the work and person of Jesus on your behalf. Amen. You don't have to go anywhere else. You alone can do that. And there's, you don't have to be praying in some eloquent way. You don't have to be casting up a lot of words and repetitive in those things. He loves you and he's provided for you in Christ and so therefore you have his ear. You can come to the throne room whenever you want. And what's even crazier about that is that when you enter into the presence of a king, if you know your history, you usually did so with your eyes down, not looking at the king, and you would bow and bare your neck to the king because you're saying, off with my head if you wish, I'm yours. But look what he says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, you and I can step into the throne room and speak to God with confidence, knowing that there is nothing that will stop us from having 
conversation and, and present time with the king because the son has paved the way for that. And not only did he pay the price, look what it says next in verse 20. By the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. In other words, that when he died, that curtain that separated the people from God's presence was torn. Go back and read Matthew 25. It was torn, signifying that in the tearing, and metaphorically, of the flesh of Christ on the cross, at his death, that that is now done, it is finished, the work is done. We now have communion with God through Christ if we have faith in him. And he says this in verse 21. And since we also, since we have a great priest over the house of God, So not only was he the sacrifice, but now he's the intermediary for us that he stands to the right-hand side of the Father. He intercedes for us on our behalf. So when we sin and we should be destroyed for it, he says, no, 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 Father, I paid for that sin. When we pray, we know he hears our prayers because the Son intercedes for us. He says, yes, I bought that with my blood. We have these things. He's making this statement saying, therefore, since we have access uninhibited to the Father, since we have that access, since he is now our priest who stands as our intermediary, we don't need it for another person. We have God himself doing that for us. He now draws into verse, 32, verse 22 and he says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Look at it again, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. Jesus has paved the way for us to have relationship with the Father. He is the one person that could do that, and he did it. The reason he can do that for everybody, one person dying for all, is because he's worth more than all of creation combined. If I were to sit here and ask you, what would you rather have, Van Gogh or one of his paintings, you better answer Van Gogh because he can make more paintings if he were alive. And so his painting may be very valuable, but the painter is way more valuable. It's the same with the creator. The one who created all things is worth more than all those things put together. So his death can pay the price for all who would be his. And he did. And now, he says, now let us draw near. So because of all that, let us draw near. It's in the force of a command. He says, let us draw near. Let us go to the Father. We started off this whole thing with talking about Christ-centered, confessional community. If you remember two weeks ago, if you don't, go back and listen to it. Two weeks ago, we talked about the idea that Everything revolves around Christ. He's the center of everything. We need to make our lives centered around that, oriented around him, and push everything we do towards him, going to be with him, to know him. And all he does is say, come to me, all you who are weary laden, and I will give you rest. My burden is light. And we kept saying, come to Jesus. Come back to the Lord. Don't stay away from him. He knows what you've done. He knows what you haven't done that you should have done. He knows all the junk. He knows the things we hide in the veneer. Come to Jesus. He wants you anyway. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Come back to Jesus. So I just want to remind you, get in your notes here if you want to have this, a reminder that we're saying here, look at verse 22. He says, let us draw near then with a true heart and full assurance of faith. I'm telling you, you need to come to Jesus religiously. That's a foundational element. We never get beyond returning back to the Lord. We talked about Luther and and, and his quote that we gave two weeks ago. All of life is repentance. Over and over again, we turn back to the Lord continually. And that's what this is saying here. Let us now draw near to to the throne. Let us draw near to the Lord. Come to Jesus. Draw near regularly, faithfully, 
And he says, focus your heart on him. Look what he says. Draw near with a true heart. That word for true heart rings the same as what it does back in Matthew 5, 8, where Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, pure in heart doesn't mean you're perfect. That word for pure actually means singular in focus. It means undivided, holistically in one direction, without divide. In fact, R. Kent Hughes says this way, he's a commentator, he says, there are two, be no mixed emotives or divided loyalties when we approach him. There must be pure and unmixed devotion, sincere love for God. Holistically, everything in our lives centering around Christ, coming to him religiously. Now, I don't like the word religious or religion, honestly. Acceptable use in James is a good way to use it. But most of us think about religion. We think of rules, regulations, and taking the fun out of fundamentalism. What do we think about? Now, I think about the Pharisees when I think about religion. I oftentimes don't want to think about myself, although I can be religious in a bad way too. But when I'm talking about this word, religiously, I mean it the way most people mean it in the world today. I mean regularly, like it's a real habit for you. Come to Jesus religiously. Come drink in the Savior and find the refreshment that you can only get in Him. The one who wants you just the way you are and accepts you that way and carries you forward. Come to Jesus religiously. Look at verse 23. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast the confession of Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So I want you to come to Jesus religiously, and then I want you to confess Jesus religiously. As we talked about all last week, it was about confessing the Christ. That means confessing your need for the Savior. If you didn't wake up this morning and realize it's something you needed to repent of, then you're not recognizing yourself in light of who Jesus is and his perfection. And when you recognize that, you see all the faults and all the things, you confess that out loud and you find freedom in letting that go to him and being honest with yourself and him and the truth sets you free. And then you begin to confess Jesus and his greatness right behind that for your soul. And what's crazy about it, last week we talked about, right, is that when you live that way, not just internally, but all this is meant to be lived externally, then when you do that in that context, everything you say internally, if you begin to live it externally, it changes everything about how you live, and it also changes how you do what you do. Because if you're trying to share Jesus or the faith with somebody else, you don't have to do it from a top-down mentality of, I've got something you don't have, I know more than you know, you need this thing real bad, look at you, pitiful person. You then go, hey, look, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior today, just as much as the first day I met him. So I have nothing to bring to you but the Savior himself. And whatever you're struggling with, I may not can relate, but he can. I may not be able to bring you peace in that, but he can. But I can relate to you in that I need him. It changes everything. Centering around him, confessing. And here's the thing, even when you fail, because when you're not faithful and you don't do what you should do or you do the things you shouldn't do and you're not faithful, he is always faithful. Always. Read the verse again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. When you see the word for in the Bible, that's a real big indicator. Okay, what's that saying is that I'm about to give you a reason for what I just said. So let's look at it again. Same verse. 
Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Says, hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to that confession. Confess your need. Confess to Christ that He is Lord. He alone can do it. He's sovereign. He's the one that can make it happen. He's already paved the way for presence with God. He's already made that happen that way. He's interceding for our, on our behalf now. And now hold fast to that confession. He says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For, here's the reason why, here's the grounding statement. For, he who promised is faithful. So you hold tight to that because even when the world gets crazy and you can't hold on to anything else, hold tight to Jesus because he is always faithful. He never changes. He will be yours. He will come through. He is, now, that doesn't mean he's going to get you out of your tight bind the way you want him to. But you will always have him. Even in your death, you'll have him. Because he's already defeated death. He's already defeated that. He's victorious. And so therefore, we get to be his younger brothers and sisters to go enjoy the rest of eternity with him when that time comes. Hold fast to the confession. Confess Jesus religiously. So you're going to come to Jesus religiously. You're going to confess Jesus religiously. And now we're going to get to the part that we're going to hang on to for a few minutes. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Old wrestling move. Come to Jesus religiously. Confess Jesus religiously. And commit to Christ-centered community religiously. You see, I think that the first two kind of feel abstract. Yeah, I'm Jesus-centered. I'm pretty good with that. I mean, I don't do it all the time, but I can, I can do it a lot of the time. I think I do a pretty good job of that. It's easy to tell myself that. And I can say, confession, yeah, 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 I'll talk bad about, the, I'll tell the truth about the things that I've done. And I'll, I'll talk about those things and my struggles. I'll be real, but a lot of times it's to a point, right? Not too awful deep, but just enough to feel like I'm being real confessional. But now we get to the one that's the obvious one that's very, very clear. It's kind of like a line drawn in the sand. And this is where you got to be real honest because everybody else knows the truth. The other two are kind of internal. This is kind of external, right? Committing to Christ-centered confessional community religiously. Now, I'm going to take a moment and pause in this text, and I'm going to jump to a whole bunch of other biblical texts, because I'm going to paint a picture for you real quick of what the biblical theology is about community and where it comes from. So don't pretend that you can keep up with this and flip pages or scroll on your phone. You can't do it, okay? So just hang with me. If you want the notes, email me. I'll send them to you. I don't mind. I'll give them to you any week you want them. If you're going to use them, just tell me so I don't get surprised when somebody mentions it to me. But you can have them every time. And you take that and you study it later. Right now, just take a breath and listen. All right, here we go. So here's the deal. First of all, write this down in your notes and then just take a breath and listen. You are created for this kind of community. You're created for community. You're made for it. You're made for this thing. And if you want to feel like you're doing what you're meant to do, then you need to be doing this thing. I'm going to talk about the thing in a second. But you've got to do it. You're made for this thing. If we were to ask a hammer when they're the happiest, the hammer would say, when I'm knocking stuff down or when I'm putting nails in the wood. That's when I'm happiest. I'm doing what I'm made to do. You watch things in nature around you, animals and insects, and you watch, they love doing what they do. They, they just can't stop doing the thing they love to do, the thing they're made to do. However, we are created for community, and we just don't do it a lot. Or we think we do it, but we're not doing it the way it's described in Scripture. So let me just walk back and hit from the beginning. Genesis 1, 26 through 27. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Trinitarian language, you hear that? In our image, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. What he's saying here for us to understand is that he created us in the image of God and he uses plural language talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to demonstrate that there is a community that God has always been in. Before we were ever and anything was ever created, God was. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now our brains can't wrap around that exactly, but that's how we understand him. All God, three persons, one God, same essence, same value, different roles. Okay, now if you can explain that without jacking that up, I'd like to talk to you after the service because it's a lot to take in, it's a lot to get out, but it's just the truth that we see in Scripture. We describe it the way we're seeing it here, and that's just how we understand it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, never needed anything else. He didn't create you or me because he needed you or me. He didn't, he didn't create us because he was missing something. Perfect harmony, perfect love, perfect grace, perfect just fellowship within the Godhead. Did anything else. Out of the overflow of his love, he created us in order to love us selflessly. Out of the overflow. He did anything else. And he created us in his image. That means we are imaged to be in community. And he created us for community with himself. He, from the beginning, had the plan for us not to be alone. Just listen, Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. You may think it's good to be alone. It's not. You're not made for that. It's not good to be alone. You're not made to be alone. And then we see that the the fall happens, right? Sin enters the world. Adam and Eve disobey. The one thing they're told not to do, and we all think, well, I would never do that. Yes, we would, right? I always do the one thing I'm I'm told not to do. It's the rebel inside of me who wants to break the rule. I drive around the wrong side of this building all the time. (laughs) Confessing. It's not a law, but it looks like a rule. I break it. Sin, therefore, separates us. We're going to see how it works right here. Genesis 3, 7, and 8. You know what was happening? Adam and Eve in the garden without a care in the world. They don't even know they're naked. I bring it up because it's going to talk about it. They don't even know they don't have clothes on. They don't even know that. They're just the way they're made, and they're just enjoying life. They're working. Work is already there. I know you think it's part of the fall, but it's not. It was already there. Work is there. And they're already been told to multiply and be fruitful and all that stuff. Genesis 3, 7, 8. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one cloth. Immediately, that relationship is beginning to be separated. Immediately. Next verse. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Immediately, they separate themselves from their creator. C.S. Lewis says that hell is locked from the inside. Because we run from him. They immediately in their sins separated, destroying community. They were in community, destroying community. And at the end of their time in this fall where he tells them all the results of what's going to happen, in Genesis 3.24 it says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, that's the angel, they're not cute little harp-playing things, babies on the clouds, okay? Scary. Every time an angel shows up, people quiver and hit the 
face first on the dirt, right? This is what he says. The cherubim was placed there in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, he's saying, you can't get back in. You've ruined it. You can't, if you try to come this way, you will die. You can't come back in. Done. But he's not done because he loves, and he tries to overcome that, and he does successfully overcome our sin by sending Jesus. But we see even before that, he gives promises. Leviticus 26.12 is the, one of my favorite ones to quote. It's all over the Bible. It's a theme that runs everywhere. I challenge you. Try to read a book of the Bible where you don't see some version of this verse in there. Leviticus 26.12. And I will walk, God talking, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. This goes all the way through to the end. Read it in a second. But what we see is he takes care of that problem by sending Jesus, who is the lamb who is slain for us, the sacrifice, whose blood is sufficient, who then creates the pathway back into relationship with God. The, the curtain is gone, and we can be in relationship with him. We can approach the throne, and he tells us to draw near. Come to him. Come back to the Lord. Let's be confessional with him. Be honest. Be real. Talk the truth. And here we see in 2 Corinthians, it says, From now on, therefore, talking about those who are in Christ, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We're changed. We're not the same anymore. From the inside out. That's that whole sprinkling of the heart he talked about earlier. Done. Cleared out. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, he says. God making his appeal through us. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What he's saying is, is that everything was destroyed, community with God was destroyed forever. He said, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, I'm going to walk among you forever. But that's been destroyed. And so now what he does is he fixes the problem by sending his own son, worth more than all of us combined, who alone deserves glory and praise. And instead he takes the cross. And he dies in our place so that he can redeem us and bring us in, adopt us into his family because he loves us that much, even though we spit in his face continually. He does that for us, and when he does that, he's drawing in all these people. He then says, hey, hey, hey. and now you get to be a part of being the reconciling messengers. I'm going to do it through you. I'm going to give you the message of reconciliation. I'm going to include you in the bringing in of community. Everything about us has always been created to be in community with God and with one another. Always. And now that it's been jacked up, he's using us in fixing the issue. He loves us that much. He wants us that much. Look at this, Revelation 21 in the end. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is John talking about his vision of the end. And he says, And the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen to this, the loud voice from the throne, this is God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
the same thing. The beginning, the end, the salvation in the middle after it's jacked up because of sin. Everything is about him being with us, us being with him. If we think that we can live a Christian life and not want to be with God or be with his people, we've missed the point. We've missed the point. And I'm sorry to say it out loud if we aren't used to this yet. And I don't know who, somebody here is not going to hear this before now. So I'm bringing you into the, I'm not really sorry, but I'm just saying I'm sorry to be the bearer of this if you didn't get it yet. But sitting in a room where everybody's facing the same way is not community. This right here is not community. This is our worship gathering where we commune with the Father through the Word together. But this is not confessional Christ-centered community that we're talking about right here. In order to have that kind of community, you've got to face one another. You've got to look at each other. Take a second. Stop looking at me and look at each other. Just scan the room. Some of you don't even want to do that right now because it's so awkward, right? That's because of sin. Don't let sin win. Fight it. Look, the, the, we cannot do... This is not community. Not the way the Bible talks about community. Community like... We're seeing here is community that happens in a smaller environment where you're with other people who are honest with you, honest with themselves, and are trying to push towards being like Jesus and letting Jesus speak to them through the word and being changed by the Holy Spirit's work in them. That's community that we're talking about here, Christ-centered confessional community. It happens in our Sunday school classes. It happens in our small groups that happen around the community. That's where it happens. You can, you, you can do this. Don't forsake the large gathering, but also don't forsake the smaller gathering. If you are, you're being unhealthy. You're getting a peace, but not the everything you need. You need both. Look, Ephesians 5 is one of my favorite places to see this. This is where Paul's talking about husbands and wives and all the things we should do. Love your wives and submit to your husbands. Some people, we just don't like those verses a lot, okay? And I'm convinced he's telling wives to submit. To, you know, he says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, both of you. Now he says, wives, I know you struggle with the submission part, so you've got to do the submission part. That's where you struggle. Men, your part is loving your wife. You don't do that well, guys. So, like, love your wives, right? And he gives a picture, and he says this. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we go, yeah, yeah, I've got to die for my wife daily. Yes. Later on he goes, but I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about Christ. And it doesn't say here, love your wives as Christ loves your wife and died for her. It's a plural statement about the community of faith. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This gospel is for you, but it's not just about you as an individual. And we live in a world where individuality is the thing, right? You can have it your way, any way you want it. It's all about how you like it and how you want it. And it is not about that. It's about him and about what he wants. You and I are dead if we're in Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, right? It's not a preference for me anymore. It's not about individuality. It's about the community together. Now, individuals are important. Individuals make up the community. And he would have died just for you if you're the only one who needed him. Yes, okay? But it's not about just you or me. Jesus died for you, but not just you. It's more. And while I can say this to us, honestly, that you're created for community, I also need to say that you were saved in order to serve. You were saved in order to serve. Look, we don't like that one a lot because what we really want to do is be consumers. And I know I'm one. But if all you do is take in all the time, you know what happens? We get fat. I know. 
you've got to expend as well. If you look at a stream that goes into another body of water and that body of water has no outlet, it becomes stagnant and nasty, stinky. That's what we've become, brothers and sisters. If we're not also serving and trying to think of others and do for others in that way, especially in community, that's what happens to us too. Look at this up here, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's nothing in that passage about you going there and getting fed. Just saying. Read it again, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, will somebody get some good stuff out of that? Maybe get fed, maybe get encouraged? Yes. But he's telling you to do that, me to do that. We're to serve. So you may say, you know what, I just don't have time. You know, I'm already doing X, Y, Z, and, and I just don't have time to do that. I don't need that. I'm getting stuff other places. No, no, no. You go because you've got to serve. You're an ambassador. The king says go, you do it, or you don't get to be an ambassador for very long. Right? Part of the way you know that you're his is because you do what he says. Look at the way he talks about it here. This is kind of crazy. Let us consider, let us think, let us contemplate, let us figure out how to stir up one another to love and good works. You've got to get to know people, figure out how to help them, how to walk with them, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. In other words, some people were neglecting the gatherings in these events, these smaller groups of gatherings from true community. He says, don't do like that. Don't be like that. Don't neglect the gathering. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen to that last phrase. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, as it gets closer to the arrival of Christ, do it more and more and more. In other words, when you first started coming to this church and being a part of things, yeah, come to the large gathering, get to know people, and then find you a group, maybe go sometimes. He's saying the closer you get to the end of his arrival, the more you should gather together. Now, I'm not saying we should do holy huddles and never go out into the community. Don't do that. That's wrong. That's the whole stagnant, servant self thing. Okay, don't do that. What I am saying, though, is you should be doing a little bit more than one day a week seeing each other and passing by. And How are you? I'm great, man. So good. Yeah. Hey, pray for this about me real quick. Great, thanks. See you later. That's not community. It's just not community. You're made for community. If you want to find fulfillment in your life, if you want to find real happiness in your life, if you want to find really like joyous living in a way that you probably maybe never experienced if you haven't had this, then you need to jump into a community long enough to let it start to be effectively changing you and then let God just work in your heart and see how much you change then. Because the problem is, we can hear a message, or we can listen to Scripture, or we can read it on our own. Man, that's, really, that's a good thing I heard today. I'm going to do that thing. And then there's no accountability. There's no application. And we don't see our blind spots. Aren't you glad you got rearview mirrors? Man, I'm spoiled. Our new vehicle, our newest vehicle, has mirrors that show you the regular. It's kind of like a semi-truck, you know, because it's a big van with a lot of kids. It's got the, the mirrors on top that are normal, and then below it, it has one of those mirrors that shows you the closer sides in case somebody's in your blind spot. We need people like that in our lives, that are our rearview mirrors, to see our blind spots. I don't want you looking at this thing behind me. I don't want that. This bald spot right there, I don't want that. But I need that, especially if my hair's all jacked up and it's not combed over well enough, right? I need it. 
I need real life like that. I need somebody to tell me, like, hey, you know what? I saw you the other day dealing with your kids, and I, mean, I understand it's crazy, man, but you seem like you're a little, a, little, a little too much. Are you doing okay? Do you, need, do, you, do you mean to pray with you about that? Do you mean to pray for I've been praying for you, but can, I, can, I, can we talk about it? Do you need me to keep you accountable? And you can't do that to somebody unless you know them pretty well. You know what I mean? You've got to be building a relationship. So don't do that to me unless we're friends, right? But if you're my friend, please do that to me. We've got to have real relationships. We've got to be getting real with one another. Jesus died for you, but not just for you. You need this relationship. That's the whole, the whole last point. You need this. I need this. You can't go without this because you're made for it. And if you think you're going to be the Christian that you hope to be without community like this, you're just kidding yourself. I know because I've tried to do it. It's so easy for a pastor to like be a part of all these things in leadership and not really have true Christ-centered confessional community. You know why? Because we can lose our jobs if we sin bad enough. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not telling you to do something that I'm not afraid of doing. It's hard. But it's worth the risk because no matter what happens, if we're not real about this, we don't have assurance of our faith. Look, this is what it does for you. Let me give you a few things of why you need this. A, we're not created to do life alone. Okay, we're not created to do life alone. B, Christ-centered confessional community provides us with assurance of our salvation. One of the guys I was reading this week, he said, one of the first indicators of a lack of love toward God and the neighbor is for a Christian to stay away from the worship services. You hear that? One of the first indicators of somebody to not really love God is to stay away from the gatherings of other Christians. This is what he says about it. That person forsakes the communal obligations of attending these meetings and displays the symptoms of selfishness and self-centeredness. Look, I'm around children often. And children are the most self-centered beings on the planet. Just the way they are. It's part of maturity they're in. Me, 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 me. I, 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 I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. And if that sounds like things coming out of your mouth about church, maybe you need to get in the context of a gospel-centered confessional community so God can mature you up a little more to at least become a teenager. The people that sometimes say, hey, how can I help? Right? And hopefully become a gospel-centered parent who's reproducing other disciples. We have to be in that context. Look, if you don't, we don't have theological orthodoxy. It helps us stay true on the right things. Repentance is hard without a friend showing us along. And we really just cannot really become the image of Christ alone. We're not made for it. So would you please consider that? Here, look. Our large gathering, last thing I'm going to say about it. Our large gathering is made for, for one purpose. This is the purpose of our large gathering. is to inspire you and motivate you to follow Jesus. And that's not even our job. Seth and I, who are up here most of the time, our job is to lead you to Jesus, who leads you into the throne room, okay? And, and that, that's what our job is in worship right here. But we're not the ones who inspire and motivate. That's the Holy Spirit working through the text, working through the music and the song. He, is, he does the inspiring and the motivating. He does that. And then we leave here, and if we're not careful, that's where it stops. Where life transformation is really going to happen is in the context of gospel-centered, Jesus-centered, confessional community. It's going to happen around other people who challenge you, who love you, and love you too much to leave you where you are. 
You've got to be hearing somebody speak truth into you. Otherwise, you're going to be missing a big piece of the puzzle and you'll be very unhealthy. You might be a Christian, yes. But where do you get your assurance from? You might be a Christian, yes, but you may be a very, very stagnant one. You might be a believer and a follower of Jesus, but man, you're way behind him, way back there behind him. What would it look like if all of a sudden we began to invest ourselves in the lives of others and got real? When we started confessing sins, confessing struggles, confessing our hurts, confessing our pains, and letting God be the one who looks strong and not us, where he gets the glory, right? What if if we did that for other people and they they realize, hey, I'm not alone. You know what happens every time I'm in a small group and somebody confesses a sin? Somebody else goes, me too. I wasn't the only one. You know what what happens every time somebody's in a small group with me and I or they confess some kind of struggle or hurt? Almost every time somebody goes, man, me too. I I thought I was the only one in here dealing with that. It frees you up to give God the glory and other people then don't think we're perfect because we're not. And then they want to be a part of this real confessional community. What would it look like if we started doing that? I think we would see people flocking to you saying, man, you're different. You're telling me all your junk. That's weird. I love it. Right? They don't want to tell you their junk yet. They're not comfortable. But they want to hear yours. And they want to hear why you're okay with it. And you say, I'm not. But I have a Savior. and He's okay with me. And he loves me too much to leave me where I am. Let me introduce you to him. It would change our world. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to encourage you to take this week to pour over these last three weeks of sermon and say, how can I come to Jesus more this week? How can I confess Jesus more this week? And where do I need to sign up to commit myself to a Jesus-centered confessional community? God will reveal to you what you need to do if you go and ask those questions. He will make it clear, inescapable. Let's begin the process now. Father, we are not perfect or totally self-aware. Lord, you know us because you created us. You know everything about us. Nothing surprises you about us. Would you help us to walk in your ways and be yours and be obedient to your leading? Would you make us sensitive to the direction of your Holy Spirit? And Lord, if there's somebody here today that does not know you in that real relational way, the way they're created to know you, God, would you pierce their hearts with this truth today and bring them alive so that they can believe and trust in you, Lord? They, they would repent and put their hope and faith in you. But we know that you alone have the power to bring someone who is dead to life. You alone have the power to change things about us that we've tried forever to change but could never win and do. Lord, we ask for your help today so that we may know you and be yours and that we may know others and be honest and real so that you receive all the praise and all the glory and we just get to enjoy you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.